Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time to break the silence and open up the dialogue around the topics of miscarriage and baby loss. No more shame. No more taboo. Let's ditch it for the sake of our children. The ones who are, the ones who will come. And in memory of the ones who never came to be. This is the Worst Girl Gang Ever podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Worst Girl Gang Ever. We are thrilled to be joined in our virtual studio today by Tulip Mazumda. Welcome. Hello. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you so much, much for joining us. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. We're really cool. excited to talk to you. Um, I think when the first time that we saw you talking on, was it BBC Breakfast? Yeah, so I did the rounds on on across the BBC actually. Yeah, so BBC yeah. Breakfast quite a lot on this yeah and to hear about everything that you've been going through and to be able to use your platform to talk about it is um is fantastic because we know that the more that we talk about it the easier it is for other people to do the same so um yeah we hooked up with you on twitter and thought we would get you on the podcast so that everybody can hear a bit more about what you've been going through you've had quite a journey haven't you yeah no it's been um it's been uh, an insane, I'd say, two to three years because um, I had my, well, I, I, so I've got a little boy who is four years old. His name's Rion. And um, that was a completely uncomplicated pregnancy. Um, but then um, I got pregnant again uh, about two years later. So this was towards the end of 2019. It was autumn 2019. And um, I got a positive pregnancy test. Uh, and then when I tested again a few days later, uh, it was no longer positive. And then soon after that, I got my uh, period. So that's um, what's called a chemical pregnancy. And with that one, I just, you know, life was busy. You know, we all know that miscarriage is is sadly very common. I, I just sort of got on with it without mm. thinking about it too much because, you know, that's what you do, right? That's what we as women are told to do. Mm. And, 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 you know, and it, and it was... You know, it was my. It was just my second try, and um, it, it didn't work out. And then I got pregnant again at the end of 2019, and um, that one was much more tricky. Um, it was a another early miscarriage at eight weeks, and what made it particularly difficult for me was that I um, I found out that it was probably going to be a miscarriage. Um, you know, I'd, I'd had a little bit of bleeding. I went in to the early pregnancy unit and they said, yeah, this doesn't look like it's going to develop. It, it's mm-hmm. much, 
you you think you're around I think I was six seven weeks at that point whereas it's looking more like five weeks but we need to wait a couple of weeks to make sure that it's definitely not a viable pregnancy as they call them um but I was due to go abroad to uh Moria refugee camp in in Lesbos in Greece um and with work with work, we should yes, say. Sorry. Do you want to tell people what you do for work? Yes, of course. Yes, I'm I'm a global health correspondent for BBC News. I've been doing the job um, for since 2013. Mm-hmm. So um, it's 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 an amazing job. I feel really lucky to do it. I get to cover um, women's health stories around the world, and obviously more broadly, um, kind of health st- um, health stories around the world. So obviously the pandemic. Uh, that was a big one, although, again, because of my journey with pregnancy loss, which coincided with the pandemic, I was on that less. But before that, I've been out in West Africa covering covering Ebola. I was in and out of Sierra Leone for, uh, and Guinea for, for two years during that. Um, before that, I did quite a lot of work in South Asia, so Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, um and yeah with Afghanistan I was embedded with British troops um going out and about with them during the height of the conflict there that was before I was global health correspondent that's when I was just doing more foreign news and before then I worked at Radio 1 um as the news presenter for Radio 1 and Radio 1 Newsbeat and before that I was at BBC Radio Merseyside so yeah it's been a long journey. Wow so you're BBC through and through. I am BBC Three. So I always feel a bit like, oh gosh, I've been basically the only proper job I've I've had. You know, I've done kind of temping jobs in other places, loads of other places. But yeah, I've been at the BBC for all my kind of serious, I guess, working life. But oh, yeah. I always justify it and not feel quite so embarrassed because I've done loads of different things. So the BBC's yeah. massive. So I've done like mate. I wouldn't feel embarrassed. I'd love to work for the BBC. I know, institutional. You know, like the BBC is such an institution. You do become institutionalised when you're when you're there for too long. So I probably am institutionalised, but um, nah. I've done lots of different things. So, <laughs> nah, you're amazing. Keep doing it. Keep doing what you're doing. So yeah, so I do feel really fortunate. So yes, that. Um, so for my job, I was going to Moria refugee camp in Greece to do a story on maternal health in and how you know obviously there would be hundreds of pregnant women going through that awful camp and also looking at mental health as well so I found out I was probably having a miscarriage just before I left I was just a bit blindsided really and I didn't know what to do I was like so do I get on a plane in two days time and Mm. go or do I not and she just sort of said you know, she was just a harass. She was a harassed clinician. There were loads of people. It was a weekend when I went, you know, she was just like, yeah, I think you'll probably be fine. I didn't get too much information. I, you know, she just said, come back. It might be a miscarriage. It might not come back in two weeks. And that was really the extent of the conversation. So, and again, you know, because there's this whole rhetoric around, oh, it's so common. Women just get on with it. I was like, yeah, it's so common. Women just get on with it. I'm just going to go to Moria. So I got on the plane and I mean, this camp was, um, I've been to a lot of difficult places in my time. Like I said, you know, Sierra Leone at the height of the Ebola outbreak, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, northern Nigeria with um with, with Boko Haram and the the the, the um you know the girls that were kidnapped um up there. I spent some time sort of retracking some of the route they did. And I have to say I found Moria the most difficult deployment I've ever done. I'm sure part of that was because of the miscarriage, mm. but there was also something about just just the kind of lack of hope in that place it was just mm. so sad and there were so many um families and young people you know children of of my my son's age who at that time was um 
uh, almost two. And um, anyway, so I went and I just started bleeding, bleeding heavily. I was going through pad after pad. I was hopping in and out of the portalies there, which were just filthy and awful. Did you tell anyone, anyone that you were working with? So I I did. I told my producer. So I was really lucky. I was with an all-female, lovely team. Mm. And I told Gabby, my producer, um, a couple of days before. And, you know, I just said, look, I'm I'm fine to go. I'm happy to go. I want to go. And, and you know, and we decided that that was, well, I decided that that was fine. And then when I was there, um, we did tell our lovely camera woman as well. And we had a, a local fixer as well. Um who, who I told as well, she's another lady and she's lovely. And, you know, I just remember, I remember sitting, having dinner, um, you know, we were, we, we got to come back and sit in a hotel and, you know, um, eat and sleep well. And I, I, I just, I, I just felt so terrible on that particular trip because I just felt so guilty that all these people were going through all of this. And I don't know, it hit me in a way that it, 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 um, it hasn't on previous trips, but anyway, we were sat there having dinner and I just remember, standing up and I was sat on a white chair (laughs) and I and there was just blood all over the chair and I was just absolutely mortified and um they just said look you 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 go you go upstairs like we'll we'll deal with it we'll sort this out and um yeah and then I just remember sitting on the bed there just just thinking to myself I I don't want to you know I don't want to go out there again and I don't I can't um you know I I can't go back out, but I did go back out. We finished the story and we came back. Hmm. It's, do you think like a part of that, I mean, there were presumably other people in that situation, in that camp where you were going through that same experience with, with horrendous living conditions and stuff. Did it make you think about that as well? It it hugely made me think about that. And it made, again, I just felt so terrible because I felt very lucky because I knew I would be getting on a plane back in a couple of days and going back and going back to the early pregnancy unit. Here in Moria camp, I was speaking to a woman who was eight months pregnant. She was living in a, in a tent. It was freezing cold. We went in December or end of November. Um, It was freezing cold. She was in a tent. She was sleeping on a piece of cardboard, which was wet. Um, I mean, it was inhuman. It was just terrible. Oh, and then, and I mean, she she very soon after we reported her story got moved. Um, but as you say, there were there were there would have been you know hundreds across across a number of months because they come in and out and they spent maybe between like two months, six months, a year, some of them in that mm. terrible place that would be going through that and there would be nothing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we went to the we went to the um, maternal health sort of tent that uh, Medicine Sans Frontiers had sent, had set up. They were doing what they could, but, you know, they had, you know, fully, you know, huge pregnant ladies who were in in a lot of danger, frankly. And so, you know, those who were having a, just having a miscarriage, you know, they, they had to prioritise. And for those yeah. ones, that were, and, and I think most women in that situation wouldn't have even thought to go and try and get any help. Because, no. you know, there isn't that, there, there's hardly any, women who are about to give birth let alone women who are you know having miscarriages so it was it, yeah it was it was really really sad and I was fully aware and again having reported on these sorts of stories you know when I've been in different countries around the world and I've seen um the really poor health care particularly mm. for women um you know I again I throughout my journey I felt extremely lucky um mm. 
but it, it you know another thing I found out during the work I did subsequently on miscarriage is that loss is loss and grief is grief and no matter where you are in the world I spoke to women from all over the world for a series I did on miscarriage global series that the kind of everybody was sort of saying the same sort of thing about isolation about not feeling enough about not being a woman about not you know yeah. being able to give your parents grandchildren or your husband a child or you know there were there were sort of slightly different versions of it but the feelings were all very similar yeah mm. but what happened when you got home did you go back to the EPU so I went I got back knowing fully that I'd lost the pregnancy I mean I've bled mm. so much um I went back they said yes you've you've lost the pregnancy um it was a complete miscarriage so I didn't need to go back um and then they just said oh you know you know there's nothing there anymore so you can just you, you can just try again um you'll be very fertile at the moment you know if you go oh that old chestnut Yikes. thing yeah and they actually people actually say that in med- mm. in the medical arena well i think she was sort of yeah i mean i think she was a bit more like um I think she sort of said it as, you know, you're often quite, she didn't sort of say it categorically, but yeah, I mean, that was, you know, you're often quite fertile afterwards. So off you go. And there just, there just wasn't any, it was just so run of the mill. And I think because they treated it like it was run of the mill, I was just like, oh, I don't know why I'm sad about this. Or of course mm. I should have gone off to that refugee camp and carried on doing that story. When, but when I look back now, I'm like, that was insane. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> it was insane, but it wouldn't have made any difference to the outcome, would it? No, it wouldn't. No, no, absolutely not. It wouldn't have made any difference to the outcome. But I, I you know, I was um, certainly kind of emotionally and mentally and physically like not really in a place to be doing that. But then, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm also I'm grateful I could tell that story and that you know we we you know went out far and wide and you know I hope it made a difference. So I'm glad yeah. that we did it. But it's it's I guess the point I'm making is that I I think we as women. And um, uh, you know, you will have stories like this. So many people listening to this will have stories. Mm. This is how they just went on. They just carried on as normal. When one of the worst things that you can go mm. through for a lot of us, not for everybody, but you know, is happening to you, and you just sort of soldier on. And I just think the strange thing that we all do that we feel yeah. to do often. It's one of those things. I think you you sort of hit the nail on the head a moment ago, and and it's something the drum that I've been banging since the start is that. When everyone treats you like you should just be carrying on, it makes you feel as though your grief is disproportionate to your loss. And that in turn makes you feel like you internalise it. And that, I think, is part of the problem why we don't normalise the conversation about around grief because we don't feel entitled to the pain. We don't feel entitled to the grief because everyone else is just moving on and treating you as if nothing, you know, nothing worse than a bad breakup has happened in a way. Yeah. And at the end of the day, this is this is a huge, as you say, this is a huge life experience that we had to go through and we had to work out how to manage and how to weave into our future selves because we are changed people when we go through it. Mm. And it's not just something, it's not a bad day at the office that you can just move on from and, and get over and, and and forget about in time. It's 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 a life changing experience that you have to shape around you. And I think that so many women do exactly as you say, and so many women just crack on mm. because they don't know what their options are. And that's yeah. a part of a big part of the reason we do what we do is to just to let women know there are options um, and they are valid options. And, mm. and one of those valid options is grieving, it's mm. grieving for your loss, which was huge. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's something that's come across with 
people all over the world I've spoken to that have, you know women who have said exactly the same thing like even so I, I came back from Moria and I um in fact I, we were editing um the pieces so it was within a week of coming back I get a phone call from my sister who had started bleed she was pregnant as well uh, at about eight weeks she'd started bleeding the night before she'd gone into work the next morning she was on her way back and she was now bleeding heavily and she was she called me up she was like I've had to pull over on the motorway I've called I've called an ambulance she goes I feel like I'm losing a bit of consciousness can you go and pick up my daughter from school blimey yeah yeah and, and again it just really struck me because I was just like gosh you know we talk about how common it is I mean this had you know, told her what had happened to you yeah so she knew okay. she knew and and um yeah and she and I knew she was pregnant as well and so you know I tried to shield her a bit from kind of how upset mm. I was and then she called me and she's having this conversation we I was in the middle of editing this piece about this woman who was eight months pregnant in Moria living in a tent on the ground you know I had just suffered a miscarriage and my sister was calling saying yeah an ambulance is on the way and I'm bleeding heavily and I might pass out and I just thought yeah, it's yeah, so surreal. That is crazy. So, what was it that made you think about doing the miscarriage piece that you did, and at what point did you decide? Oh, I want to talk about my experience. So, 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 I've had the two early losses I've told you about, and then I yeah. had two late losses, and um, they for me were and continue to be just a complete, you know head screw <laughs> um uh, you know i i found it i i did not know what i was in for when um i lost um river who was born at just under 20 19 weeks four days in june 2020 so this is a this was a late missed miscarriage um i went into hospital on my own it was the height of lockdown I then um, I remember going into into the scan room, scan room number nine, and lying there thinking everything was okay. Um, you know, worrying about oh, I had to call my boss afterwards because we needed to sort out. You know, a billion things are going through my head, and they were not about the baby. So you're, I mean, the twenty week scan. People think they're going to that to find out the gender or not, don't they? That's yeah. So that's actually, the main concern. It wasn't the 20 week scan, actually. I'd gone in because I, I, I felt I was, I felt something wasn't right, but I just thought, oh, I'm worrying about it too much. So I didn't, I was mm. just like, I'm going to just go because it's really close to me. I can do it. Mm. You know, so I just went, but I didn't seriously think there was a problem, but there was something nagging. Reassurance. Yeah, it was a reassurance one. And I, you know, and I'd had those two earlier losses, but I passed 12 weeks. I thought everything was going to be okay. Mm. I went in and, um, there was there was that silence and um but again I didn't think that what she was about to say was what she said um and then you know she had the whole I'm gonna go call somebody else they had a look and then there were those words I'm so sorry and you know you're 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 totally uh flattened aren't you like mm-hmm. I just thought what are you saying to me mm-hmm. um and and then everything happened really really quickly um and, and I and I remember the um 
I remember looking down in my hands and someone had put some leaflets in my hands and I was looking through them and they were talking about funerals and post-mortems. And I was just like, oh, they've come into the wrong room. Like, this isn't, I'm having a, because they said, oh, you're, you know, you, you're, it's a miscarriage. I thought, oh no, I've had a miscarriage. They've given the, they've come to the wrong room. Someone else has had a stillbirth and they're going to have to do these things. And so I was completely confused by that. Um, and then, and then, yeah, very quickly I'd, I'd taken the, um, the pill, which would bring on labor. You then, you then come back and you go to the labor ward 48 hours later. And then within 48 hours, um, I'd given birth again, something I didn't realize I'd had to do. Even when they told me, I was just like, do you mean I have to have a baby? Like this is all. And again, this was because of my understanding of, of miscarriage and how we use this word miscarriage. And even in my, my job, in my role, even reading up in between, you know, finding out I'd lost the pregnancy and, and having the baby, I was reading all this stuff and I was just thinking, no, this isn't happening to me. This isn't, this isn't me. This isn't what's going on. Um, and then, um, and then we had the baby and, um, and I, I've written a little bit about this, but the, but the birth was, um, you know, beautiful <laughs> in a way I wasn't expecting because, because it was a chance, it was just the one thing that we all did together, me, mm. our baby boy, River, and my husband, like baby was being born, I was pushing, Carl was holding my hand. It was the only thing we were ever able to do together. Mm-hmm. And um, and then when he was born, you know, there was a there was a baby that was presented to me, and I found that I you know I I really struggled with that, and we sort of got got up and got ready to go. <laughs> we were like, oh, what happens now? Do we just go home now after this miscarriage? Um, even though there's a baby over there, so why are we calling it a miscarriage? Mm, yeah. And um, and and they said you you can you can go. And Carl was certainly ready to go. He he really he really could not be in that room. And I thought that that's what I needed to do as well. But when it came to leaving, I couldn't move off the spot. Mm. And um, it was actually the midwife that said to me, you know, you, you you might need to stay, and it's okay if one of you wants to stay and one of you doesn't. And so I stayed and I'm, I'm really, really glad I did. I spent the night with River. I was, I remember being horrified. My feeling, my feeling was being horrified. And then I felt so guilty for feeling horrified, but, but that's mm. how I felt. I was horrified to learn of a, of that, that, that a cold cot exists. I've never mm. had a cold cot. I was horrified to hear that it exists, but, but it gave me a, a night with my baby. And looking back now, obviously, I'm just, I'm just so, I'm just so grateful for that. Um. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And, and yeah, so, so, so that was the third loss. Um... And then within eight months, um, I was pregnant again. I was four months in, um, 16 weeks in. 
And uh, again, I went in, this was for an appointment, actually. I went in and um, they scanned and it was the same scan room nine, the same lady with the really straight, long black hair that did the scan, the sonographer, um, and the same words. Um, I'm so sorry. Jesus. Did she remember you? I don't think so. I said, because I actually had my bereavement midwife with me that day. Um, she she happened to be free and happened to come with me that day. And as soon as I saw this lady, I said to her, this is the same one that did it for River. Mm. And, um, but, you know, I wasn't going to ask someone, you know, I just was like, this, you know, I was, I remember going before going in there and I was shaking and I was crying, but that, but I did mm. that before every single scan I had after River. I mean, that wasn't weird. And had you had any concerns before that scan? Uh, no. Well, I mean, I, I had concerns every day about everything all the time, course, but yeah. no, nothing, you know, nothing kind of based on anything other than the fear I had. They're being uh, told that like, again, like utter disbelief, I yeah. imagine. I I fell from earth. I just, I just, I don't know. I remember, I remember sitting on the ground and just not being able to get up and I couldn't really speak. And my lovely bereavement midwife, um, she actually called my husband that time and told him because I couldn't. And we, yeah. And then I remember, I think I drove her. Yeah, I'd driven there. So I drove back. And it was snowing that day, like really light snow, and I don't know. I, I, I so I think I think after that, I, you know, I had to go through a very well. It wasn't actually a very similar birth. The birth was extremely traumatic. I lost a lot of blood. Um, it it was uh, it was it was a terrible birth, really. Um, you know, they had to you know press the emergency button. Loads of people came in. Carl mm. thought I was going to die. It was it was it was awful. Carl's my husband. But then after that, I was just, I, I was, I had, I had nowhere left to put any of the grief. I couldn't, I couldn't talk about, you know, how sad I was. Like I was just like, this is all futile. I can't just, yeah, can't do all that again. Like, what are we doing? Like, this is madness. I have to, you know. Whereas the first time, I was just sort of told, you know. So I've never had a reason for any of my losses. Yeah. Um. Eve, I had a post mortem with River, my first late loss, and um. And it revealed, you know, nothing that that would have caused it. Um, and this, and I, and I, they just said, look, it, it was bad luck. It was just one of those things. And I took that because I think I was just so sad and flawed by everything that happened. I didn't do what I do every day in my job, which is question, investigate, mm-hmm. I didn't do any of those things for myself. But then after Ray, I was like, this is insanity. Like, you know, a definition literally of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And yeah. that's what I felt like we've been doing all this time. And I just, I just couldn't, I, 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 I couldn't go down that grief route again. I couldn't go through everything that I'd been through after River. I didn't have it in me. So I put all of that energy into investigating what happened and try and getting to, you know, I, I, I signed up for the recurrent miscarriage clinic that had like a six or eight month waiting list. I call them every single week saying I can take any last minute cancellation. <laughs> I can be there within the hour. You just tell me. Um, I contacted all these specialists. Um, I saw a doctor privately. Um, and and at the same time, I also just thought, right, I'm global health correspondent. I have this platform. I've literally got, you know, the 
you know, a job of looking at global health. This happens to millions of women around the world every year. I'm going to do a really substantial piece of work for BBC News. So the two sorts of things were happening together. Um, I, I found out I was pregnant again just as I started that BBC project um, at the end of 2021. And um, and then during the whole during that whole project, you know, investigating, um, uh, you know, care for miscarriage around the world. My investigations for Ray came back with nothing. I mean, there was no problem apparently. Um, during the pregnancy, during this pregnancy and uh, my latest pregnancy, they, they, as they phrased it, threw, threw the kitchen sink at me. They gave me mm. everything that they knew wouldn't be harmful and that might make some difference to some women and maybe that some women will be you. Did you feel reassured by that? It was something. It was better than doing nothing. But I mean, mm. I was doing it. I was injecting myself every day with blood thinners. I was taking aspirin. I was on progesterone. Um, what else? Higher dose folic acid. I mean, a bunch of stuff. And uh, you know, and I'm 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 very pleased, and I'm so grateful to say that I had a beautiful baby girl in in July this year. So I'm actually on maternity leave at the moment. Um, the the documentary and the reports went out in sort of February March this year. So just as I was getting ready to go on maternity leave, and. I don't know. I just, you know, now it feels, and I'm sorry, I've been quite higgledy squiggledy with my story. That's it's fun. Of one thing bleeding into another because work and the pregnancy did become very connected and everything that happened with River and Ray sort of pushed me to, 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 to do the, um, the documentary and, and, and the series, which what part of which you saw on, on BBC breakfast. And it all just became part of the same thing, really. I mean, that line between like, you know, work and and my personal life did become quite blurred although the professional side of it it was almost all about you know um you know new therapies and what scientists were saying I didn't sort of focus on my story too much but I was coming from a place of understanding I thought yeah. that was important um so so yeah so sort of that really takes us up to now I've got a four-month-old little girl um everything is is, is going well I, I still worry every day mm. I still I'm still sort of trying to understand what happened and come to terms with what happened over the last sort of two and a half years. Um, you know, I've still got a big box of River and Ray's things that, you know, I mean, literally just this morning we were getting some bits and pieces out and I sort of, we, we've stored it and I've, I, you know, I just think, I what, what do I do with this box? What do I, how do I, you know, I go mm -hmm. from sort of not believing it exists still to, to sort of mm -hmm. trying to, find out how to, you know, keep it and how to keep their memory alive without, you know, being weighed down by it, I suppose, or being really yeah. sad. Still, as you can probably tell, I'm still trying to process it all. But but the documentary yeah. and the series were a real ode to them. I felt it was a really positive thing I could do with, you know, like you guys have done, right? You've sort of put your, um, you know, your experience and the experience people shared with you into this podcast, mm. which which helps mm. lots of people. And I was really hoping that with all that pain, that there was at least something that you could do for other people who are going through it to make them them feel not so alone. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant what you've done. I wanted to ask you, how did, after River and Ray, how did you, how 
did you get your mind into the right place to try to conceive again? Because lots of people struggle with this and lots of people have early losses and struggle with it. But to go to have late losses two in a row and then to think, I mean, you must that must have been an incredibly difficult decision to make. Like, do we try again? What if it happens again? Yeah, it was. Um I thought I thought I probably had one more try left in me. Um right. you know, I don't know. I I there were times of course where I just thought I can't I I can't do it. I I think getting pregnant after River with Ray I mean, I was in a terrible state. I really wasn't ready for that pregnancy. I mean, who's ever ready for a pregnancy, but I was really in a dark place at that point. Mm -hmm. And and I think when it came to getting pregnant again with, with, with Lily, who's now four months old, um, I think I just closed my eyes and ran into it. Yeah. Uh, um, And, and I think to be honest, doing the documentary, doing the series, speaking to people, speaking to doctors, you know, I was able to, it really helped me. It really, really helped me because the focus wasn't on me. It was, you know, it was on the story, on the issue. And I kind of just had to think, and uh, well, and also we were doing, we were doing something. So I was on the progesterone, which by the way, made me feel terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was having the heparin. I was being much closely monitored. You know, it wasn't like that after my, at that point, fourth loss um, with with Ray. Uh, every, you know, nothing really had been done. Even after I'd had a late loss already, I didn't feel like the care was any different. Whereas with this pregnancy, I was being really carefully monitored. I was finally in 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 the recurrent miscarriage clinic where I should have been much earlier. Mm. Um, so I was being. I was being, um, you know, treated and seen uh, regularly. I was on some different drugs. And in terms of like mentally, I was able to put all of that kind of anguish and fear or most of it uh, into something positive, into, okay, this might not go the way I want to, but I am doing something else that's really, that I think is really important and I think will make a difference to other people who are going through or have been through what I've been through. Yeah, I think as you say, sorry, Laura. Sorry. I was just going to say, as you say, there's something so powerful in your own personal healing when you feel like you're going to help someone else. And I've always felt that personally. It's not so much about my story anymore. Mm-hmm. It's about that fact that I've used that as as a sort of a fuel to be able to help others that are going through that. So to change the landscape of support, to change the shit that we go through that so it doesn't have to be quite so dark for other people mm-hmm. and I think that is and I know you feel the same don't you Laura is it, it, it's incredibly healing mm-hmm. and empowering to be able to and it almost feels for me certainly it almost feels like I, I'm doing that for the baby that I lost I'm doing that with their heart in my heart to be able mm-hmm. to give that to someone else mm-hmm. and yeah. I think one of the things as well that I felt like I really wanted to get across and I you know I know I've talked so far about a lot of darkness clearly it's 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 it was it was devastating and it continues to be devastating of course it does but what I found in that kind of in those some of those very dark places was was 
was love and some beautiful things I could do for those babies. Mm. And part of that was in the aftermath. So when when River and Ray were born, and not everybody can do this, my husband couldn't do it, and there isn't a right or wrong at all, but I personally found like love and beauty in being able to, in 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 holding them. I didn't hold River very much, in fact, minimal because I was scared. Um I with with Ray, because I had experience, I, you know, I brought a book with mm-hmm. me that day. I I brought LED candles in with me. I brought felt-tip pens, which I sort of decorated the the white little box they'd put him in with. Um I had um I had these beautiful leaves from a myrtle tree that's in our garden that we'd that we'd um planted for for river I brought some of those put them next to Ray you know I I just I did what I could and I I bought some nice little, a couple of nice little flowers as well I really took my time even though mm. it was excruciating but I really took my time with when I went to the funeral home to um to prepare uh we used a basket i hated it when they showed me coffins that just found that really difficult so we had this like lovely basket and you know when i picked one by one um petals off the roses and like made this lovely rose bed and you know all of those things which which when you can't do anything for your baby because they're dead <laughs> it's something mm-hmm. you can do if you feel you want to and if like so i guess what I wanted to kind of get across was that there can be when you feel you can do nothing, when you feel you have nothing, when you feel there's nothing that can be done for this baby, like there are these things that can happen that can be healing. Maybe not even at the time because it's hideous doing at the time, but yeah, I'm always glad I did it. Yeah. It, it gives you the opportunity to create memories. And we always say that's like the hardest thing about losing a baby is that you don't have any memories with them because you've never, you know, especially with early miscarriages, you don't meet them, you don't hold them and you don't get that first birthday, you don't get that first day at school and things like that. When you do have just a little bit of time, you can create some memories, can't you? And even afterwards, right? Like, you know, I, you know, I, I, I drew, I just thought about him and drew, or I had, um, you know, at the end of every year, Spotify, can they give you a playlist of all oh, your yeah. most, so when I listen to the one from 2020, it all, it, it takes me back to that place to be it, mm. River, and of course it can be really sad, but it's also, it's something tangible where I can sort of, I can feel how I felt then again, mm-hmm. um, and it's not just devastating. There's also something that brings me closer to him. I also, um, you know, we went to the beach to scatter river and consequently raise ashes. And we go back there every now and again. And it's not really sad. Like, you know, my my son and hopefully my daughter, you know, they play years to come. You know, they play there and they hop in and out of the sea. And, you know, and it's just, it's, it's, it's just the moment to remember and acknowledge. And I think... Um, and again, this came out from so many women I spoke to in different countries, just that acknowledgement and that it was real and that it wasn't just mm. just the miscarriage, you know, that happens to so many women to just get on with it. It's It was something that re- was real and touched you and devastated you, and but, but it was there and, 
and it's acknowledged and you can acknowledge it with your family if you choose to. That's the end of part one. We had so much to chat to Tulip about that we are coming back for another episode. So join us next week for the rest of her story. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.